Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening, and welcome to episode 0000. 115 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Will Triple R headquarters at the end of the 96 line. And as we all know, the end of the 96 line is on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind you that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you to Vaughan for an excellent episode of Double Bounce. Good to have you back. Sam did a fantastic job while you were away, but um, there's only one Vaughan in my in my experience. Uh, thank you very much to the lovely Vanessa Morris, who filled in for me while I was away the last few weeks. She did, did a fantastic job. Uh, she's coming along in leaps and bounds as a broadcaster, so uh, keep your eye out for her. Big things, I reckon. Now, if you're listening to us in Victoria, well done to the vast majority of us who have shown the community-minded spirit to keep each other safe and allow us to open up a little tomorrow. If you're tuning in from Sydney, um, our thoughts are with you during this lockdown period. We do know what it is like, and it does indeed suck, but hopefully you won't be in it for too long. But at this stage, unfortunately, it looks like you might be. So um, greetings to you. Tonight, we have a very special guest indeed, as we are enjoyed, joined by the prolific author and activist Anita Heiss, Professor Anita Heiss to you. Um, she has a great new book out entitled Bira Yara Dangla Dangla I'm looking at her on the screen and she's got a big smile on her face, so um, I think I did reasonably well, yeah. Um, it translates from the wonderful Wiradjuri language um, as to River of Dreams, so we'll talk to her about that. And a bit more, I want, I want to explore her craft of writing and how she uh, is prolific and how she manages to, to kick out so much um, excellent work so regularly. Uh, it is going to be streamed on the Triple R website. It's going to be streamed on uh, YouTube, uh, the Triple R YouTube website, and it's going to be streamed on the Facebook, Triple uh, R Facebook page. So if you want to get a load of that, uh, go to those pages by uh, 10 past 7, and that's when the conversation with uh, myself and the wonderful Anita will start. Um, as way as always, and the best uh, best way to get in co- contact with me during the show is via my Twitter handle at Mr DT James. Uh, we're broadcasting live on YouTube and Facebook this evening and via the Triple R website rrr.org.au because we have a, a very special guest this evening, and we want to um, make sure that we get uh, bang for our buck out of having someone of this caliber on the show. Uh, Professor Anita Heist is a proud Wiradjuri woman, and she's many things. Uh, a prolific author um, across genres, including historical fiction, commercial fiction, poetry, short stories, and children's stories. Her writing also extends to articles on social commentary and travel. And either has either won or been nominated uh, for multiple awards over the years. She is a satirist, a passionate activist, and an ambassador for several causes and organisations, including the Go Foundation, Warra Aboriginal College here in Victoria, and she's a lifelong ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. 
Um, intertwined amongst all this is a stellar life in uh, academia in which she has earned herself a Bachelor of Arts degree in 89 after a cadetship at the Australian International Development Assistance Bureau, later Ausaid in Canberra, she returned to New South Wales to complete her honours degree in history, where she gained a PhD. Where she also gained a um, sorry, she has also gained a PhD in communication from the University of Western Sydney in 2000, becoming the first Aboriginal student at that university to achieve that, which is a remarkable effort within itself. As of 2021, Anita is professor of communication at the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit at the University of Queensland. And on top of that, the professor is also a marathon runner. So uh, get a load of that. Her latest book is set on Wiradjuri country, one of the largest tribal lands in the continent, where she's where its life-giving waters and the rivers make or break dreams and are based around the true events. In her new book, entitled Bila Yarradara Wunga Darai, River of Dreams, and that is an epic story of love and loss and belonging. And to speak to us about that book and about all other things, um, within confined, with agreed terms, <laughs> is none other than uh, Anita Heiss. Anita, welcome to the mission finally. Mandangul, thank you. What an extraordinary introduction. I don't know if I'm nervous or old or there's <laughs> a lot going on there. You did a lot of research and digging up the past. But thank, I'm very excited to be here with you. And can I just say, um, I just want to say in my language, if I can, yeah. um, Marangaria, Yundu Yanada Heis Baladu Rajri Gilang, Aramiki Brangli Bumir Gandhi Bala Williams, Yumanadu, Yagaragul, Turbulgul, Mianjingul, Maingul. So good evening. Daniel, it's been forever we've been planning this. Um, I said, I, in my language, I said it, my name's Anita Heiss and I have Wiradjuri belonging from Arambi and Brungle Missions. I'm a Williams. And tonight I'm, we're coming to you live um, uh, from uh, the traditional country of the other Interval peoples in Brisbane. We, it's known as Mianjin here and Yinjimara is, I just paid my respects. So I'm really excited to be with you this evening. So thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So from Nam to Mianjin, Hello, and hello to um, everyone else out there, no matter where you are, um, sit back, pour yourself a hot or a cold cup or something, and uh, enjoy the conversation over the next uh, 35 minutes or so. Um, I want to get to your extraordinary book, um, of course, but I thought that um, we'd like, I'd like to sort of lay, lay some um, context in terms of where we've come from, you know, as um, I guess an Aboriginal literary community. So like, like me, I'm guessing, Anita, when, when you were growing up, there was basically no Aboriginal authors that I'd heard of during my upbringing. And um, if there were, we certainly didn't have a line of sight to them or any sort of access to, to that. Uh, fast forward to today, 2021, and you walk into any bookshop and the work of Indigenous authors promulgate the shelves um, across all amazing sorts of genres. Now, you've been one of the authors that's been at the forefront of that. Um, but it wasn't always the case, and I think we must remember that. So where has this explosion in, in literary creativity come from in recent years, do you think? Uh, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I'm a little bit older than you, but when I was at university and at school, as it were, I, mean, I didn't even have a local library when I was in primary school, um, and so the, the we did not see ourselves on the pages. We weren't publishing on mass like we are today. When I went through university, I was fortunate enough to meet the late Ujuru uh, Nunakal, who was changed her name in from Kath Walker. Um, but most of the works I had to read um, to, in my undergrad were by 
by and large, by non-Indigenous authors, some of those authors had never been to Australia. But what we've seen, as you, I think you mentioned the word explosion, and I love that word to describe um, what's happened in terms of First Nations writing in, in recent times, is that, you know, in, in decades gone by, we had our pioneers, and I always want to acknowledge our pioneers, because for tips, anybody out there wanting to write, if you're a First Nations author you want to write, you need to read The Pioneers. I'm talking about Kevin Gilbert and Jack Davis, Annie Ruby Lang Guinebe, Udrea Noonuckle, Monica Clare. They're our pioneers who push the boundaries for us. And for many years, until recent times, it was this expectation that Aboriginal literature, as it were, would be published by Aboriginal publishing houses. And of course, we've only had Magabala since 1988. Aboriginal Studies Press in Canberra publishes mainly um, non-fiction and academic work, and a lot of what they publish is not necessarily by Aboriginal authors or Torres Strait Islander authors. Um, and we had IAD Press um, in Alice Springs for some time. But what we've seen, and then small houses with minimal budgets, you know, a few books a year, what we've seen in recent times, we've seen the, the, the big five, the big five group of publishers in Australia, so that's... Uh, some of my publishers, Simon & Schuster, um, Penguin Random House, Harper Collins, Pan Macmillan and Hachette. They are now publishing uh, our voices. And so that's put a whole new spin on who sees us, where our works go, um, you know, that we've gone from being in, um, you know, on Indigenous studies on the shelf to being out the front at airports pre-COVID, out the front at airports in Kmart and Target where all our stories should always be. We've seen amazing partnerships between, for instance, um, there's the Black and Right program from the State Library of Queensland, which is a partnership with Hachette, and that program has a fellowship where authors, um, there'll be two, you know, winners and so forth each year, and they get um, and, and it, their manuscript edited and then they get published by one of the big five, which is Hachette at the moment. And, of course, what that does is, that shines a light uh, on mm. our emerging authors. We've got out of that. We've got people like Nadi Simpson, who you all know, you know, it's shortlisted and winning a swag as awards. Won the ASL Prize last week. I think shortlisted uh, for the Miles Franklin. Um, and we've got people like Jared Thomas, who's you know written a half a dozen books at least now. Lisa Fuller, who's just been shortlisted again for another prize in Canberra. Uh, in Canberra. So we've seen. That strategic partnership being a springboard and that inspires other people to write. We've got Black Words, which is the only database of its kind in the world that documents um, in, into a database every single thing that's been written and published by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers and storytellers. Um, and there's a whole lot of teaching resources within there, which then speaks to the education system, uh, which is required now under national curriculum to have cross-curriculum uh, embed Indigenous voices in terms of cross-curriculum priorities. So that also... Um, generates a space of need and yeah. market-driven um, stuff. So we've got that. We've got an increase in events which highlight and showcase our work, bringing to our work non-Indigenous audiences because you and I both know that there's not enough First Nations peoples, um, even if every single one of us read to sustain a publishing industry. So yeah. what, you know, a large part of our market, of the, most of our market is the non-Indigenous audience. So we've got events like um, the Black and uh, Black and White um, 
program that was at the Wheeler Centre, first in 2016, yep. curated by Jane Harrison. There was another event since then. They were all sold out, every single one. I think bar two of an entire weekend of programs was sold out. Spoke to Jane today and that will go ahead again next year oh, in fabulous. March. Yeah, so, so many good things. Sorry, I'm still going. <laughs> and if we think about the explosion is also driven by, I think, not myself because I'm, I feel like I'm always the bridesmaid, you know, always the runner-up in terms of literary awards, but, just, but that's not what I write. But we have got, we are kicking goals in every literary category, in every state and territory in terms of awards. Um, and so what happens when, when uh, we're shortlisted or we win awards, and when I say we, I mean our mob, yeah. that is something that we all celebrate. It inspires other people to go, oh, I know her. Maybe I could write a story. And, and that's what we need to see. We need to see because you know that it's saying you can't be what, what you, you can't, can't see. <laughs> it's so true. True. And if and you and I, I didn't have that so much when I was growing up. And so when you look at the Miles Franklin, which is the most prestigious literary award in the country, as you know, yeah. if you look at the last 10 years, we've had three winners. So we had Kim Scott who won it for That Dead Man Dance. I think it was 2011. Yep. And, of course, he'd already won it for, that was his second win for Benung uh, from, uh, from the Heart. Melissa Lukashenko won it from for Too Much Lip in 20, I th- I'm going to say 2018. I think maybe that's right, yeah. And, of course, last year, Tara June Winch won it for The Yield. So, like, three out of ten, that's quite extraordinary. Um, on top of that, what we saw last year and um, what your listeners may not be aware of is during the Black Lives Matter movement after the, I can't, I don't even have the word, the disgusting, appalling, gut-wrenching, unbelievable public death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. What we saw was this international mobilisation around the world, as you know, um, of people, an outcry. Now, what we had here in Australia, we had that here in Australia on a level we'd never seen before, Mm. even though we'd known and we'd had a Black Lives Movement here since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. But what happened at that time, we were all in covid was there was an incredible surge in sales, in book sales in Australia for First Nations writing because, miraculously, Australians wanted to read and learn about things that we'd been saying for decades. So what that did was that, again, was this great explosion where publishers are going, you know, they could not keep up with demand for what people wanted to learn about race theory, about history and so forth, and they wanted books for the first time en masse by First Nations authors. So I think there's a number of reasons why that explosion is happening. All of them are um, important because, it, for me, what it does is what we see is whether it's a novel or a play or a poem or an anthology or a memoir is we see finally this recognition that our stories matter too, that our truths matter, that we need to be driving any conversation in the public domain about identity, about sovereignty, and that come that can come through many means, but in this case, you know, obviously through literature and it can be a picture book. And, and, a big- 
teaching through picture books. I think I think there's a real thirst for it as well. And I think um, here in Melbourne in particular, uh, Anita, I'm sure you're aware of it, is that, you know, independent booksellers down in this part of the world have really gotten behind uh, Indigenous authors. And you'll see them whenever there's a new release. They'll be in the window uh, during things like NADOC Week or Reconciliation Week. The window is totally taken up with um, Indigenous authors and, and they are prominent. Um, so, you know, big thanks to the independent book scene um, in, in our major cities. Um, uh, Are we allowed to mention any booksellers or that's not kosher? <sighs> oh, okay, we won't. Okay, that's I okay. I don't, I don't write the rules, Anita, okay? <laughs> no, I you know, in case people were wondering where to go, well, that's all. Go for it, go for it. We're, we're, we're here to talk about... Even if we look at this week's bestseller list, for instance, for places like Readings, which, um, you know, the, the Readings are very heavily involved in the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, which I know we want to talk about, yep. um, you know, on the board and so forth. So we, that when we see our books in bestseller lists in independent stores or even chains or even department stores, what, we, what, we, what we're actually seeing now is a shift, in my view, a shift in the psyche of the nation, okay. that now that now just goes. That's a normal thing. It should be a normal thing, not yeah. you know, you take photos and put them on Instagram because it's still a big thing for an author. It's a big thing for an author um, anyway. But I think um, for your listeners, most of them will be aware of the independent chain, the readings, because they've also been a very big supporter of black writing for a very long time. I can definitely vouch for that. Um, that was actually the, the, the bookshop I had in mind when I was thinking about that. Um, it's interesting you, you, you say that, uh, you know, that um, the, world is, the world is changing. Now, you're, you're someone of multiple talents. You could turn your hand to, to a whole range of fields, and, 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 and you do. I was speaking to um, uh, Larissa Barrent um, a few weeks ago. And she's someone who is similar, someone who is very, very, very capable in so many different areas and fields. But it seems to me that um, uh, both of you, and, and, and you in particular, you've settled on storytelling as the way that you want to evoke change a across society. Is that, from your point of view, is that the main, uh, I guess, weapon in your armoury in terms of trying to get that change across society? Uh, I'm yes, I'm going to answer that. Really. And first, I just want to say, like when I was thinking about the bestseller list at that independent store, I was thinking about After Story by Larissa, who's Fantastic in the top book, right? And so, and Larissa and I did our undergrad together, and I've read all her body of work, and that she's one of the people that inspires me to write. You know, I I may have more books, but I'm motivated by what she does. So I wanted to say that um, up front. So in terms of storytelling, I. People might think I'm naive, but I've seen it in practice. Um, if you know, every time I speak at a school or I, I do teach a PD, and that is, I firmly believe that we can, as human beings, connect through sharing stories. And by connecting through stories, we get to understand each other. And when we come to a level of understanding through storytelling, it's much easier then to have the conversations that are often challenging. Um, in terms of diversity or issues in a community and so forth. So I write um, for me, for me and my purpose, I've chosen storytelling because I want to write stories so that our kids can see themselves on the pages in books that we expect them to read at school in a way that you and I never had, in a way that even 10 years ago it wasn't as, as great as it is today. I want to write stories so that all Australian kids see diversity in the classroom, in their books, because I think storytelling that way, and you know, having characters from all different backgrounds, that it becomes a normal experience 
Also, kids don't necessarily see difference. So they, if kids are racist on the playground, they've brought that from somewhere else because yeah. born racist. I write, um, I, I think storytelling through a novel, like because obviously I write a lot of novels, historical novels, and I think um, truth-telling through um, writing novels and so forth is a really, I know it's a really effective way to reach a broader audience. So, you know, we're going to talk about my new novel shortly, but we've just hit press, we've just hit send on another print run, and that's been out Fantastic. 11 weeks. Yeah, 20,000 books. Wow. What that means is there's book clubs in Australia sitting around talking about history, talking about the uh, what happened in a particular period of time through a, a Wiradjuri lens for the first time. So I want I want Australians to pick up a, a novel. You know, they say they say if women stopped reading, there's a famous quote: if women stopped reading, you know, the novel would die because <laughs> we're eighty percent of the novels. I, I believe that. So I go like, if women are going to be, if women only read novels, I'm going to write novels, and I want them to read about you know the anti-intervention or black deaths in custody or Yardi and Jackie Jackie. And so I, at the same time. I want them to read our stories because I want them to understand through our voices our absolute brilliant sense of humour, our humility, uh, <laughs> everything that we contribute to society every day, our resilience and how we're forced to become resilient at a very young age. If you think about um, if you compare yourself like I do with some of my non-Indigenous friends who don't have to deal with sorry business when they're kids in primary school who don't have to deal with youth suicide in their family because it, they live a different world. So I want, I think storytelling is a really practical, non-threatening way to engage with non-Indigenous people so they can, so they can learn, um, so they can learn and we don't have to be actually just be doing it in conversations every single day on the it's, bus. It's, it's actually, in very real terms, a way of uh, literally picking up what, what we're putting down. You know, you know, you pick up a book, you delve into the story, and then you make of it what you will. It actually, in a way, becomes becomes your story. Uh, just before we go to um, our one and only break, which is in two minutes, um, you were talking about the the emotional toll there, uh, Anita. Um, and it does take an emotional toll delving into what happened to your people, the Wurundjeri people, in such a forensic way. Um, where do you get your energy to to carry on with some of these stories? It's a question I've always wanted to ask you. Well, I was going to joke and say get it from chocolate and running. <laughs> but um, I, the thing is I'm really, I, as of tomorrow, I'm on a month's leave because I'm so exhausted, emotionally, right. mentally, physically exhausted. And I would say the energy that I got, particularly for the last book, which took so much out of me because I gave it everything because I wanted it to give everything back. I would say the energy I get is from being with my Miyagan, my my family, being back on country, being around language speakers, understanding that what I do is a small part of what we all do collectively and that we are we're going to be okay. So I get my strength from I'm, I'm glass half full. I have to be, otherwise I wouldn't get out of bed every day. I'm hopeful all the time. And as you would be, that every conversation you have, that that you touch, if you touch one person emotionally and they walk away having learnt one thing, um, I mean, I don't know, I'm not putting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's how I feel. Um, and so I'm spurred on emotionally by, by feedback from people who say, you know, I'm in a female female book groups of three and a half thousand people who have never read a book by a First Nations person before, and they're like, "Oh wow, I want to I want to read more." And so I get my energy from that. Fantastic. And, 
And and chocolate. Uh, do you drink coffee? I drink a little bit of coffee. Okay. Yes. If you live down here, you drink a lot more. Um, we are going to take um, a quick break now, and then we'll come back and I'll ask Anita about uh, the new book and her work with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. See you shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And you are indeed with Triple uh, R and uh, you're listening to The Mission. My name is uh, Daniel. We are in conversation with uh, Professor Anita Heiss uh, this evening. We're very fortunate to do so, especially before she's about to go into um, a month-long coma after uh, working her proverbial life so hard um, over the little period. Anita, let's get to uh, your book, your new, new book, which I have um, – I actually listened to it on, um, on audiobook, so – it, it, it translated really well to, to that experience um, because it allows me to listen and take notes at the same time and just um, produce some of the content for, for, for this show. Um, it is entitled Bile Yaradanga Dangalavdare. Sorry, try, try that again. Bila. Bila. Yarudang. Yarudang. Dangalang. Dangalang. Duray. Bila Yaru Dangalang Darai. That's correct. So Bila means river. Yep. Yaru Dang means dream. Galang is the plural, so mm-hmm. many. And Darai is the action of having the dream. So it translates to the river of dreams. So it's a fabulous book. Um, it starts in and around the point of first contact um, around the what we know as the Gundagai area now. Um, and then it moves very quickly on to the Great Flood of uh, 1852, which uh, took around between, it's estimated between 70 and 100 lives, I think, um, Anedia, a monumental event. Um, basically, a bunch of um, settlers decided that they would settle on a floodplain and they didn't listen to the local mob there saying, listen, you're settling on a floodplain. Um, this this Murrumbidgee River floods like you wouldn't believe. Um, the the genesis of, the, of that story was the amazing work by uh, two Aboriginal Wiradjuri men, um, uh, Yari and Jackie. Jackie, that's kind of where the, the driving force for the for the for the for the narrative sort of picks up and takes off. Um, how aware were you of that story um, when you were growing up, Anita? And um, if you want to just fill people in on on what happened those particular days during that flood and where the story picks up from there. So I didn't know that story when I was growing up, um, of course, and we all know about Gundagai and we know most Australians know about the, the dog on the tucker box in Gundagai, but the most important story now uh, we know is that um, on, in June of 1852 um, the town flooded for three days and, in fact, four Aboriginal men went out on, on canoes to save lives um, so Yardi, Jackie, Jackie, Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, and I understand Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis were working a different part of the river and didn't actually save any lives, but they were out there. And I, for me, um, I, I was asked to write a novel. I'll just tell you how I got around to, to the flood because I was asked to write an, historic, an epic historical novel, I will say. That was the terminology. I didn't even know what an epic historical novel was. And, but I, and I knew that I wanted to write a story about um, women both Wiradjuri yeah. 
non-Wiradjuri women living on the land, but I had no idea how I was going to get to a story about this. And then and I was asked that in May of 2017. Now, in June of 2017, it was the 165th anniversary of the Great Flood and the town of Gundagai unveiled beautiful statues of the two heroes and I watched it all on, you know, I, I did know the story by then, but I was much older when I heard the story. Um, and then I watched it all unfold on social media. I was living up here in, in Brisbane then. And um, I thought, how is it that the whole country does not know, one, that this is one of, the, if not the greatest natural disaster with the greatest loss of life in our history, and two, um, these Australian heroes. So we go, yes, they were your heroes, and they are, but they saved you know, this is Australian history. Yep. Everything planning of the flag is Australian history. And how don't they know about these men who were living, in, you know, without freedom, had been moved off country, off, you know, off, you know where they were living, um, act, living under a Masters and Servants Act. And during this raging flood of three days, um, where, as you mentioned, a third of the town drowned, yeah. they went out and saved between... It's believed 49 lives. Jackie saved 49 lives. Oh, sorry, Yadi saved uh, 49 lives and uh, Jackie, Jackie saved 20 lives. How, how don't we know this? Every kid should be learning about this in school. And the town is very proud now of it's very late, you know, in terms of recognition of their heroism. It's very, very late. In 2018 then, uh, uh, both Yadi and Jackie, Jackie were... Um, presented, well, via the Yardi and Jackie Jackie Steering Committee, were presented with posthumous heroism awards. And I will say that that, that committee is made up of both Wiradjuri locals, so Ani Sony Piper, Piper, who's our matriarch from Brungle, and Peter Smith, and but it's also made up of, um, you know, other locals. So Ian Horsley, for instance, his great-grandfather was saved by Yardi in the Great Flood. Wow. And he like he attends everything. He was amazing. I got to speak to him. His family have dedicated um, things around town to Yadi and Jackie Jackie. They're so grateful. And so what you see now in town is this absolute um, acknowledgement and pride in uh, wanting to show pride in these men. So that's where the idea came and it's from. A, it's then. a beautiful statue that they've erected there, isn't it? It is beautiful. And so, and it's a small town. And for me, I wanted to, so like once I, I made the decision then, okay, the story's going to start in the Great Flood. But, um, you know, I didn't write the be all and end all of the Great Flood. There's a lot of material about the Great Flood already. I spent a lot of time in Gundagai at the local library. Shout out to Cindy and the librarians there because they were amazing. Miriam Crane is the manager of community and culture at Kudamundra Gundagai Council. And she's also an, um, on that committee. And and the, a font of all knowledge in terms of the flood. And so she read the draft, which is an enormous amount of help in me getting it right because I wanted to get it right, not just because it's historical fiction, but because, you know, there are people alive in Gundagai today who lost their families in that flood. You know, it also speaks to the way in which Wiradjuri people were treated during that time. So, you know, only Sony read drafts. Um, and so, I, you know, the first, I don't even know how many, is it 80 pages maybe out of the 300 and something pages is about the flood. Yeah. And what happened is in six months later, so in, January 2018, I started learning my language, what should have been my first language at the age of 50, down at Charles State University with Uncle Stan Grant and oh, Dr. Uncle Stan Grant Sr. and uh, his protégés, Letitia Harris and Yadi uh, Lambshead and so forth. And, 
you know, our classroom was in the university with elders and other people from around the state who wanted to learn language, but it was also standing in the villa. It was yeah. going out in the floodplains in Walker. It was looking at sites. It was carving coolamans. And it was learning stories and coming to understand what life was like for my ancestors. And, and I, I thought, oh, the story needs to be set here in Wagga. So I create a fictional character who's Yadi's daughter, who we meet at the, in the prologue in, the in 1838 when the town was gazetted, as you mentioned. So the town's gazetted in 1838 and they, they draw up these plans and build the town in the floodplains. And as you mentioned, they, it's documented that, you know, local Wiradjuri was saying, don't, this is going to flood. It's flooded before, it'll flood again. Don't and don't we, don't build here floodplain. Floodplain. What do you understand about that? You know, what it speaks to even today, Daniel, in terms of the way in which indigenous knowledge is is not respected uh, or understood or appreciated. If we look at only since those dreadful bushfires of you know 18 months ago, yeah. have indigenous ranges and cultural burning come to be recognised as ways to start considering how to maintain the country so we don't have those bushfires again. So I went out and if we come back to Yaron Jackie Jackie quickly, I went out with a group of my um, my peers down in, in Gundagai. We got in canoes, 20 of us got in canoes. A couple of people travelled from Newcastle and different places and we rode, for, we rode 20 kilometres, uh, took us five hours, um, I can run faster than that. I fell in the river, fell in because I say I'm a method writer and I wanted to experience. <laughs> and I'm really competitive, which is not a Wiradjuri value, I can tell you that. But I, I like I fell in. I go, oh, I didn't want to be the one, the first one to fall in. I hope everyone else falls in. But well, I'm telling you this story because I wanted to understand the power of the river, and I wanted to understand what it looked like from being in on the water. Now, bearing in mind those brave men were in uh going out in 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 the dark over three days torrential rain raging waters so the banks broke we go out in november like not a cloud in the sky beautiful blue day and um we've got life jackets on so i'm not going to drown unless something terribly goes wrong but what i realized is and this helped me to try and get into their mindset and understand their skill is they managed to get just say Yari saved say forty nine lives, and each one at a time. Yeah. So he kept going out. How strong and how much willpower and how much mental determination would would he have had to have? That's that's the thing I like about the statue they have there because it it actually really does show that strength and and that uh, the the strenuous nature of the, of the work they were doing. The canoes themselves can only hold one person. At a time, so that's forty-nine to fifty individual trips, and not all those trips were um, unfortunately successful because some people still still perished as a result. But um, absolute phenomenal, phenomenal effort. Yeah, absolute, and so I will say, so we, we you know, went back to Gundagai. We we launched in Gundagai, launched in you know, right across the Rage Country in Griffith, um, in Tuma, and in Wagga, and when we launched in Gundagai. Anisani launched it and Miriam launched it. And I was, I had anxiety for two months before the book came out. I was sick. I had blood tests. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was nauseous 24-7. I'd get into bed and I'm like, oh my God, why am I going to be sick? And so, um, and it was anxiety because I wanted to make, I wanted 
to do the right thing by everybody. And when you write a book, you have no control over how people read it because yeah. we read through a lens and we write through a lens. And I wanted the people of Gundagai to understand that I just wanted to, to help them with already their stories that are documented to so that more people knew about this amazing story, this incredible story, and also that the town is a very resilient town. And so Ani Sony launched it and Miriam launched it and Mob come over from Chim and Gundagai was Brungle, it was great. And then we went out for dinner afterwards, my beautiful publisher uh, and um, managing director from Simon & Schuster came out. I want to give them a shout-out as well because they have gone above and beyond what any author should ever expect and they did kick in half the money for this year's Gundagai and Adopt Ball. Well, it right. looks beautiful too, the way. Uh, We've done a great job with it. I'm sure there's no other authors ringing and asking that. <laughs> but um, And... So we were sitting down at the local Criterion, which is every town has a Criterion Hotel, and in the Criterion Hotel is this big mural. Uh, there's a number of murals and there's a big mural of, of Yari and Jackie Jackie. And so I asked him, you know, and, you know, Miriam and other locals, what what what, what more can we do? And they said, we want, we want kids in schools to know the story. So just got a contract today. We're going to do a kid's picture book called The Great Flood and, and maybe there'll be a middle, middle grade reader because I think, you know, with the statue... We, obviously, we had last year post Black Lives Matters the tearing down of a lot of statues when we realised that all these statues of people who have demonstrated racism throughout their lives. And, you know, there's all these statues, as you know, of explorers and so forth, but where are the statues of the men that that, that led those explorers across mountain ranges and, and so forth? So I think uh, I hope also that the novel contributes to a conversation around the importance of acknowledging um you know, First Nations peoples throughout history as well. I don't know. I've gone right off track there. No, no, no. I can, I can, I can feel it in my waters. I think uh, that is something that's going to change as well. And and um, you know, some of the things that have traditionally been folklore for, um, uh, I guess, mainstream in Australia will hopefully come to life uh, with some of these statues being put up about the place. Um, like I said, the one at Gundagai is just a, an amazing story and um, an amazing looking statue. And it really makes you think and ask questions. So um, if you're in that way, go and have a look at it. Um, the language, Anita, in the um, in in the book um, is full of your language, your your mother's tongue, Wiradjuri. What did you find out about your people that you didn't know before? What by studying your language? Wow, um, what did I find out? Well, I guess we always assume that everybody's smart because I'm around smart people all the time. But I what I found was the complexity. Well, actually, the complexity of the language. We look at the, the Wiradjuri language is very complex. So what I found out, what I realised is we have a completely separate grammar system. Mm. You have to let go of anything that you ever learnt or understood about English. You have to think in a Wiradjuri frame of mind. And what I realised then is how even in the period of time that I wrote this novel where our people were working as stockmen, and servants, how clever they were that they picked up English mm. because they had no choice. And even today... An alien looking, language in comparison, absolute alien language. It would be like me trying to learn Russian or yep. something or Latin or whatever. And I just think, so I, and I think, well, I feel, if I look at those two men, if I look at Yardin Jackie and Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, I look, I, what I see are absolute 
humanitarians. So they go out, they make sure that women and children and everybody else is at a high ground and safe, and they go out and save lives, right, of white people, settlers, who would not give them the time of day at any other point in time. And I guess actually going back to your original question, when I think about sitting in the classroom and learning my language, part of the language course, the Grad Cert um, Memoratory Language Culture and um, Nation Building, is that we, we talk about rebuilding our nation and what that looks like. And, you know, it is first and foremost about um, respect and caring for one another and at no point in time is it about segregation or separatism it's it's inclusive of everybody um with elders being cared for you know first and foremost and I think my I my life changed by having the privilege of being able to learn, learn a language that my mother was not allowed to speak uh at around around big mission in Cowra that my grandmother um, who lived under the Act of Protection and was taken to Kudamundra Aboriginal Girls' Home was not allowed to speak either. So I found, I for me today, you know, quite often we talk about, you know, sovereignty never ceded and, and so forth. And for me, when I get to speak language, when I stand up at the, entertain, the entertainment centre, at the convention centre and, you know, speak to hundreds of teachers and I acknowledge in my acknowledge country and language that's an act of sovereignty to me well I just want to I just want to thank you for um for going to the efforts of learning that language and by default um keeping it alive because it, it, it provides an insight that you just don't get into our culture and and as we know language is culture in, in so many instances so um thank you to you and the others for for, for maintaining that language because it's a very important part of our heritage and a very important part of our story. Um, speaking of the story, in the, um, uh, I guess, six or seven minutes we've got left, um, the story, you've done a great story um, centering the, the book around basically the, the relationship between two worlds and, that, and that's centred around um, the relationship between Wagadine, who is basically the main character, and uh, Louisa, who is a um, non-Aboriginal woman but um, has sympathies and builds a, um, a really unique uh, relationship with Wagadine. How did you come about those two characters and how did you use that as a way to drive the narrative? Okay, good question. Well, I wanted to show the life of both Wiradjuri women and, and settler women on the same land at the same time. Louise is a Quaker. The Quakers, I learned, came out to Australia in 1832 with two main goals, uh, missions, and that was the equality um, of Aboriginal people and the rights of convicts. So I thought, well, perfect, I'll make her a Quaker so she can have a purpose. It's got to be a reason why she wants to have Wagadine around all the time. But what we see in this relationship is what I still see today is that genuine affection um, and genuine concern, And uh, but it all, quite often a lot of lip service. So what we see with Louisa is uh, the, the need for a companion the desire because of her Quaker values to look after Aboriginal people and, you know, give them a better life, but at the same time had, had the power to release Wagadine from service. You know, she was in service to the Bradley family and Louisa marries James Bradley. So what we what we see in that relationship is uh, for Wagadine, we see for the first time she gets to see that not all settlers are like the Bradleys, that there are good white people um, and 
but that she still understands that she they still have the power and what we see, but we also see, like I know there's book groups that have talked about this book where the entire discussion has been about Louisa because the women reading the book see, see themselves in Louisa. Now, Louisa wasn't a bad person. Louisa lived on the land at a time where there was a lot of domestic violence. Uh, her husband was a drunk. Um, you know, a lot of the money that she had from the Quaker, from the chocolate money that Quakers have, you know, went into the property. So she really didn't have anywhere to go either. And but she's still, at the end of the day, I don't want to give all these spoilers away, it was still all about <laughs> what Louisa wanted. And I wanted to just show that it was it was difficult. It was difficult for her uh, on the land, even though she had education and she had um, she had money and she was far above the 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 uh, the ladder in terms of social respect compared to Wagadine. But Wagadine had family. And she and and I think what we we see two different yeah. worlds absolutely and and even today you know we'll see like black fellas don't say first cousin second cousin that you that you we're related kinship way we, but sometimes we can't even explain how we're related <laughs> and then she you know Louisa Louisa's family have drowned she we don't hear about her family we don't and so I think what we see are the two different worlds but that you can obviously forge affection. And and a friendship. Yeah, it's a device that's used beautifully, and it gives you an insight into the in the, into the two worlds. Um, that uh, you know, Louisa is in many ways just as far away from where she wants to be as um, as Wagadine. Um, look, it's a it's a brilliant book. I wanted to speak to you just briefly about the um, Indigenous Literacy Foundation, who um, you do fantastic work with and do fantastic work with uh, generally. But this here is the book. I'm holding it up to the camera, and I'm holding it up to the microphone so people at um, home can see it. Um, it is uh, Bila Yara Dangaladare by uh, Anita Heiss, and it's available in all good bookstores. Buy it from an independent bookstore. Don't go to a website and help a billionaire ejaculate themselves into space. They don't need any more money. Go to go to a go to a proper bookstore. Um, you are a lifetime um, ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, Anita Heiss. Um, tell us. Um, I think a lot of us know what the, the fantastic work that they do, but you tell us what, from your perspective. Uh, the foundation is so important and what it means to you. All right. Okay. All right. So it's set up. It's 10 years old this year. Um, it's important because we still have statistics that demonstrate that our uh, that um, Aboriginal or Indigenous people, young people in particular, in remote communities, uh, their statistics in terms of NAPLAN, NAPLAN results are way below what is acceptable. We can't continue to have... Uh, young Indigenous Australians leaving school with literacy levels that require them to then rely on non-Indigenous people to make decisions for them because they can't yeah. read you know, everyday things. So it's an across-industry um, initiative, Australian publishers, Australian booksellers, Australian authors. You've got our fantastic um, ambassadors down there. We Shelley Ware's one of our fan, fan, fantastic ambassadors in Victoria. Um, and, you know, the industry... The foundation works because it's a three-pronged approach where booksellers, uh, the book industry provides books at cost on the ground and communities choose the books they want, brand new books because our kids deserve brand new books. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're relevant books, they're appropriate books, and literacy workers work on the ground with communities there. There's also community publishing pro uh, projects that are born from the community and they are books that are um, stories, you know, created on the ground. I think it's 103 in total. 
maybe 60 or 70 percent of them are in the language of the local community and there's also book bars which are little board books and a little backpack that that you can that your listeners can get online and buy one of those for i think they're 140 dollars and that will go to a you know a, a, a child and an infant because what research found was there were so many well most aboriginal kids in remote communities were going to school for kindergarten having never had a relationship with a book. Now, what I'd ask your listeners to do before they get online and buy a book from the ILF website or make a donation <laughs> or do a great book swap is to imagine waking up and never not being able tomorrow and not being able to find a book in your first language. What would you do? That, you know, you'd have to go and you, know, you get a book that's in Russian. That's the only option for you. And that's the reality for these kids. And we take it for granted, particularly like you're in Melbourne with the great with great libraries. And I'm up here with, you know, the best state library in the country and lots of local libraries. And we take that for granted because these communities, we've put, um, I think it's 37,000 books into 400 communities. Wow. And we're trying to, I think they want to raise $350,000 this year. Indigenous Literacy Day is the first Wednesday in September. Please hold a great book swap um, where you, at your, oh, well, okay, so you're all actually going to hopefully be out of lockdown. We'll be out of lockdown, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I'm actually confident for once in my life. We're going to be out of lockdown, which would be great because I'm going down there to do some speaking after that. Um, But Great book swaps, that's where people come along. You, you do it at work, you do it at the school. We have tens of thousands of school kids do this. The University of Queensland will be doing three great book swaps on three campuses where people bring a book and swap it for, you know, a gold coin and so forth. And we we hope to raise, I think, $5,000 this year. And that's a few books. It's quite a yeah, few books. So a lot. It raises awareness and it raises money and it reminds us of our privilege. If you want to find out more about what uh, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation does, just go to indigenouslitercyfoundation.org.au. There's a whole bunch of ways that you can support um, the foundation's work. Um, I thoroughly recommend following uh, ILF on um, uh, Instagram. You'll just get complete, completely inundated with a kick pics of uh, absolutely gorgeous, beautiful kids uh, reading sometimes their first book for the first time. Um, but until then, um, Anita Heiss, we could talk for much longer, but thank you so much for finally coming on the show. Uh, you've been wonderful. Um, we'll get you back on the show to talk about a whole range of other things some other time. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your persistence and for making it happen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.